before Becky's going to sing a song, then she's going to excuse herself. And one of the things that came to my mind when we were singing, How Great Is Our God, Jesus, the Father, and Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. I'll never forget reading in a book when I was studying in seminary on the Holy Spirit. It was a book called, it was called A Theology of the Holy Spirit. It sounds sort of dry, but the author is a man named Frederick Dale Bruner, who's a very spiritual man and a, quite a scholar. And he introduced me to an idea about the Holy Spirit I had never thought of. And I've reflected often about Holy Spirit since that. He described the Holy Spirit as the reticent God. Now, I must confess, I didn't even know what the word reticent meant. So, like any inquirer, I looked it up, and it really is a synonym for reluctant. The reluctant God. And if you know anything about the Holy Spirit, He's not one who pushes Himself forward. He shines the light on Jesus. That is the, one of the primary qualities of the Holy Spirit. He puts Jesus in the center. And I, my heart just sort of went out to Him, the Holy Spirit, if He needs my heart to go out to Him, in appreciation, actually, that He has gladly assumed that role in my life in terms of introducing me to Christ and knowing Jesus. Let me share a little story that kind of goes along with these stories that we've heard today. I received a call last this week, actually. No, it's last week now. I get my Saturdays and Sundays mixed up since we've been doing our thing on Sunday, Saturday, our Sunday thing and all that, and then this is more like Saturday to me. So, But it was last week. And it was from a man who I knew casual. And I didn't know how old he was, but I knew he was about my age. And he had been coming to church with his wife. Not every week, but quite often. He's from Brazil. His wife is a professor of Portuguese at the university here. And he called me and I said, I wonder what Mauro wants. I wonder if he's wanting to come to know the Lord. That just crossed my mind. I said, oh, probably not. Probably not. And so I called him and he said, I would like to talk to you about being baptized. Well, we know that doesn't make you a Christian. But I thought, this is going to be a great opportunity today when I go by and see him. I said, may I come by and see you today at your home? He said, you may. So I went over and I found out this. This is, this is awesome, actually. And it really connects with our message in a way. He told me that in 2011, he was diagnosed with a form of cancer, and he was stage 3. I asked him, how old are you? He's 69. He'll be 70 in July, so he's a few months younger than I am. And he said, when that happened, it was very disturbing. I'd never been sick in my life. His sister-in-law, the sister of his wife, who lives still in Brazil, sent him a scripture. And he said he looked at it, and it was Psalm 41. So he turns to Psalm 41, but little did he know that he had found his way to the book of Isaiah 41. Verse 10 is the verse we're really going to concentrate on today together. And it says, God says, Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am your God. Surely I will 
strengthen you, I will help you, I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And he said God really stirred in his heart then. That was nine years ago. But he didn't give his life to the Lord. He's been thinking about this for nine years. And then just recently, he some of you may have seen this movie. Becky might have, the, you probably haven't. It's a story... Martin Sheen was the actor, and it's about his, his taking a pilgrimage. Roman Catholics go from somewhere in France, and it's like a thousand-mile trek round trip. And you go to this place in Spain, and it's supposed to give you this great spiritual experience. He would plan to do that right now. He would be doing that. But the COVID canceled that. Well, he's been diagnosed with cancer again nine years later. Of course, that's, that's a touching thing. None of us has been diagnosed with cancer, have we? Any of you? That would be a wake-up call, especially when you're nearly 70 years old. You know there's a whole lot less sand in the hourglass now than there was when you were 61. But we got to talking. I talked to him about baptism, explained that that was not what saves you, and shared the gospel with him, and he prayed to receive Christ. And he was clearly saved. But he said, as we talked about it, he just kind of tuned up. It was like a little child really humbled himself. He says, I don't deserve that, he said. I don't deserve it. I said, well, it's not about deserving it. It's about God's grace in our lives. So pray for him. Maldo's his name. Becky's composed a song this morning just for us. The Lord gave it to her, so listen carefully. Wasn't expecting this, so feel free to sing along the second time. What can I do? What can I say? You always know it in advance anyway. I give you my fears and all my concerns. I lay them at your feet. But what is the one thing I know bless you it's my praise Lord I give you my praise I sing it out loud I sing it deep within my heart I give you my praise it belongs to you alone what else could I offer but the sacrifice of praise. What could I do? What can I say? You always know it in advance anyway. I give you my fears and all my concerns. I but what is the one thing I know will bless you, my praise? I give you my praise, I'll sing it out loud, I'll sing it deep within my heart. I give you my praise, 
If you'll take your Bible and turn with me to the book of Isaiah, the 41st chapter. Rather than read the entire passage, I'm going to just start with verse 10, and I'll be looking at a few places in the context to get some perspective on what prompted the Holy Spirit to give this message to those who were known as Israel. Now, just by way of information, these people were exiles at the moment in Babylon. They were slaves, in effect. The government was in strong opposition to their religion and to their God. Add to that that the Persian Empire had grown to be the primary rival to ruling the world to the Babylonian Empire, which had for many dynasties stood as the most powerful dynasty in the region. And so Cyrus was leading, leading his army. And he was having no trouble at all, just sweeping ever so closely to Babylon. The Israelites knew that the Persian conquerors would not enter the city and ask them, are you a Babylonian or are you an Israelite? Because they were just going to take captives and kill people who were there who were resistant. So that's the background of this statement that is made, and it's in the form of two commands and then a statement of fact that's very encouraging. Isaiah 41:10 says, "Do not fear, for I'm with you. Do not anxiously look about you." For I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. This command not to fear occurs two more times later in this chapter. There had to be a strong emphasis on their not fearing. We can see why. Because they were separated from their homeland. And let me make one more observation. Until this time in history, let me say this, recorded history, there had never been a time when a nation had been exiled wholesale like that nation of Judah had been exiled from Jerusalem and Judah all the way 600 miles. Nobody had been exiled to any other conquering nation before and gone back home. Do you think they would have been a little fearful? Do you think they would have been a bit anxious? Well, certainly they were. Let me ask you a question. Are you glossophobic? 
You say, what in the world are you talking about? If I had said, are you claustrophobic? Obviously, you're not today because we're so separated here, right? But are you glossophobic? You probably could think a little bit and surmise what that means. Glossophobia is the fear of speaking in public. Now, no show of hands. I know all of you like to talk. So, probably none of you fits in this category, glossophobia. But if you are glossophobic, take heart. 73% of American adults are glossophobic. It's one of the greatest fears of people to stand before a crowd as small as this. In fact, the larger the crowd, the more easy it is actually for people who tend, trend toward glossophobia to speak because they really don't have to fixate on people up close and personal, right? But nevertheless, that is a fear. In 1923, Eric Little, you've heard his name before, he was a great Olympian, ran sprints for Scotland. He was approached by a young man. His name was Patrick Thompson. Patrick was a president of the Edinburgh University, University of Edinburgh in Scotland, had an evangelistic union, it was called, and he was the president of that group of students. He himself was a divinity student. He was studying theology. But that group was comprised of people who were studying all kinds of subjects at the university. And they were trying to reach out to a little town not far from Glasgow, And they were trying to reach the people, and they were coal miners. It was a coal miner community, and all their efforts met with no positive results. And they were putting their heads together and saying, how can we reach these men? And someone came up with the name Eric Little. They they thought this way. They thought, well, he's a well-known Scotsman as the Flying Scotsman because of his accomplishments in the field of athletics. And if we were to let the word out that he was going to be here... And it's going to speak. Maybe, just maybe, those men would want to come hear him speak. So Thompson went without any forewarning. He found the address where Little lived. He was a university student. He knocked on the door. The door opened, and it was Little himself. Thompson told him what he was wanting. He said, would you agree to come? And uncharacteristically for Eric Little, he said yes. And as Thompson left, Thompson was so excited, thrilled, went back to tell his comrades who were trying to reach these people for Jesus about what had happened. And meanwhile, the glossophobic Eric Little had regrets of having said, I would do it. But the next day, he received a letter from his sister, who was very influential in his life. And in the letter, she quoted Isaiah 41.10. And he said, in retrospect, he said, those words helped me make my decision. And I decided that day for the rest of my life, I would endeavor to do the work of a master. He went, 80 coal miners showed up after work. He shared the gospel. He didn't have any oratorical skills. He was not necessarily clever. He did have a wry and dry sense of humor. He was very self-deprecating. He would make fun of himself in a way, but he just, in a very conversational, almost monotone 
style, he shared the gospel about what Jesus had done for him and the power of the Lord worked. And that was true for quite a while longer. He died before he was 40 years old. He went to the mission field and died in China. This passage of Scripture may not apply to you if you are glossophobic or you have some other kind of phobia. You think, well, that's not true of me. I don't have all that stuff to deal with. But all of us from time to time have some fears. And if you don't have any now, you will have some later. That's just the way life is. So let's ask the question of the Lord in His Word. How can we get free from the grip of fear? Think about something which you dread or fear. Just take a moment and fix on that. Maybe more than one thing. Maybe the fear of failure. Maybe the fear of never having met that one who will be your spouse and you'd love to have a family and serve the Lord in a marriage. You, you fear, maybe I'll miss that person. Those kind of questions are questions which, were, which are pretty normal for people of your age, especially the second question. But let's look for the answers to the question, what can free us from the grip of fear? Here's the first. And I'm gonna, in answer to the question, I'm going to ask some questions, and the text answers the question. First of all, could it be looking outwardly for support from our fear will deliver us from the fear that we have. Well, not at all. Look at the middle part of verse 10. Do not anxiously look about you. The word which is translated anxiously look about. One word in Hebrew. And it carries with it the idea of someone who is in a distressing situation and is glancing every once in a while, looking, glancing for a route of escape to safety. Always looking out side for help to solve the dilemma in which that person finds herself or himself. The answer to that question is no. What does God say? Do not anxiously look about you. It is a futile attempt. If we survey the landscape of our circumstances, there would be nothing in most of our cases that would recommend that we be free of the fears which we face. Well, here's a second question to the question, what can deliver us from the grip of fear that we find ourselves in from time to time? Maybe more often than not for you. If we are not to look outwardly, maybe we're to look inwardly. Maybe we'll find reserves in ourselves. Actually, this word which is translated, do not anxiously look about you, it's one of those interesting Old Testament words it has more shades of meaning than just do not anxiously look about you. The word is translated in the NIV, do not be dismayed. So what does that mean? That means to be broken, broken internally because of what you see in yourself. You see yourself as bankrupt. You see yourself as not having whatever it takes to accomplish what you need to accomplish in life. Look at a little later in the chapter. And remember, every text in Scripture has a context. It's important for us to understand this isolation of one verse. There's a danger in doing that without understanding what's going on in the lives of the readers. Well, let's look in chapter 41, verse 14. 
Do not fear, you worm, Jacob, you men of Israel. Now, that's not very flattering, is it, to call someone a worm? That's pretty gross in a way, you little worm. You know, sounds like junior high boys in a locker room. But they call people that are kind of wimpy, you know. Well, this is probably, and I'm going to go out on a limb and say, this is not the way God viewed Israel. Now, understand, these people to whom this was written, they were slaves. And masters don't ordinarily, I mean, despotic masters, don't ordinarily have nice things to say to their slaves, do they? They spew all kinds of garbage toward them. And I would not be the least bit surprised to discover when we can really ask God in person if we are having any interest. Did you look at us like we were worms? And the answer to that question, I think, is going to be no. Why would I say that? Because God has called us, the Bible says, out of darkness into marvelous light. And He calls us a royal priesthood. He calls us a chosen nation. We are, according to 1 Peter chapter 10, we who know Jesus, we who are followers of God, just like these people, many of them were, we know what the Bible says, you are God's own possession. And what did it take for Him to possess us? What did it take? We can tell the value of anything that's owned by you or me or someone else by what price we were willing to pay to get that thing. What price did God pay to get us? Jesus. The ultimate price. So that puts a premium on who we are. These people were people who had a poor self-image not because of what God thought of them, but because of what they heard others say about them. You may remember when God told Moses to select one leader out of each of the twelve tribes of Israel. It's found in the book of Numbers, chapter 13, to spy out the land. Do you remember that? And these men were given their charge. They went off into the promised land. And... It was as if it was as they had been told it would be. It was a land flowing with milk and honey. The produce was amazing. But one thing they had not been told, there were giants in the land. They were a group of people known as the Anakim. They were the people from whom Goliath was descended, by the way. Huge compared to these guys. I saw this photograph just recently of Shaq O'Neal. And he is a mountain of a man. Unbelievable. I don't know how much he weighs, but he is a tall man and he's a big man. And beside him was Kevin Hart. Do you know who Kevin Hart is? And I was thinking, wow, he must only be about five feet tall. He looks like a midget next to the shack, you know. Well, these men who had gone to spout the land, they came back with a uniform testimony. And they also said this. We seemed in our own eyes like grasshoppers in comparison to the Anakim. And so we seemed in their eyes. Now, worldlings, people who don't know Jesus, they tend to have a sense about 
when you're kind of bad-mouthing yourself or down on yourself. And they look for opportunities to critique us. Well, we don't mind being critiqued. We know what Jesus says. If the world hates you, what? Know that it hated me before it hated you. This is part of the package. In 2 Timothy chapter 3, the Bible says, all those, and this is not a high recommendation for holiness, all those who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It's a given. Blessed are those who are persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does that do? It eliminates others who don't have a certain degree of difficulty in their lives. We don't have to go out and say, I'm a Christian, persecute me. What do we need to do? Just follow the Lord, right? We follow Jesus, and there'll be a certain amount of that that goes on in and around us. Well, we need to have the viewpoint that God has of us, and it's not worming. We're not worms, okay, from His perspective. So, are we to look outwardly to get free from fear? Absolutely not. Are we to look inwardly for freedom from fear? Absolutely not. Well, obviously, you could have answered this question before we began. We're to look upwardly, aren't we? What does this passage say? Do not fear, for I am your God. Do not anxiously look about you, for I am with you. Surely I will help you. I will strengthen you, rather. I will help you. I will uphold you with my victorious right hand. Five times the Lord uses the word I. I am with you. I will be with you. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. And add to that the possessive pronoun my. That's our God. You know what lies behind that I will from God? The, all the power of God, the omnipotence of God lies behind that. And not only that, the sovereignty of God lies behind that. What do I mean by the sovereignty? Let me hear it. What does it mean when we think of God as being a sovereign? What does it mean? Don't feel embarrassed to make a stab at that. What? Yes. And I hope you take the time at your leisure to read this psalm, and you'll, I mean, not psalm, Isaiah 41. What you'll discover is there's a heavy emphasis on the sovereignty of God. The Bible is about the sovereignty of God. Our God is in the heavens. He does whatever He pleases, Psalm 115 says, in contrast to all the other gods that are possible. So, here we have the power that's unlimited in the person of our God. I am your God. I am with you. And I'll do all these things to strengthen you and to protect you. I'm going to uphold you with my victorious right hand. I wish we had time. We don't. To look at other places. I became fascinated a few years ago with the idea of the right hand of God because it kept popping up in my reading. And if you go to Exodus 15, take your time sometime to go to Exodus 15 and read about what I believe is the first introduction to this idea. And then if you have in your Bible some cross-referencing, begin to look down and jot down all those. There's another one in Psalm 118, 15, and 16 about the right hand of God or the good hand of God. The Bible says about Ezra, the great scribe, says the good hand of 
God was upon him because he devoted himself to study the law of God, to do it, and to teach Israel the law of God. That's a good way to live, by the way. But we have this great God who is powerful and is interested in us. This should encourage us because our God, because of who He is, if He were an impersonal, cruel God, it wouldn't be so much fun to have Him with you, would it? But He's quite the opposite, isn't He? In the book of Hebrews chapter 4, where it talks about Jesus' role as being our intercessor, our high priest, it says we do not have a, a priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in every way as we have, yet without sin. Jesus understands us. He understands us better than we understand ourselves. He suffered and was subjected to temptation more than anyone, so He knows what's going on. And He is our intercessor. He represents us to God the Father. When Satan comes against us, you know what the Revelation tells us about the devil? He is the accuser of the brothers and sisters. And how often does He accuse us? And to whom does He accuse us? How often does He accuse us? Day and night. And how often does He... To whom does He accuse us? He accuses us to God the Father. Go to Zechariah sometime. Read Zechariah 3, where there's this courtroom scene which unfolds there. And there's a man named Joshua who is representative of us. And then there is the defense... And the, I mean, the uh, prosecuting attorney. And it's Satan. And when I sin, you know, as a child of God, I sin every day. I'm sorry to admit it. I sin every day. And when I sin, do you know what Satan does? He goes before God the Father and he says, there goes Mike Woods again. See him? He's that preacher down there in El Paso. He's always talking about holy things. And you see him? He doesn't deserve it. Expose him. But what, what does Jesus do in that case? This is what Jesus does. He's the defense attorney. He steps up. He says, wait a minute, Father? The Father's a judge. Wouldn't you like to be represented in a court case by the child of the judge? That would be a good representative to have. That's true of us. And this is what Jesus... I heard this guy say this one time. His name, last name is Flynn. I can't remember his first name. But it's awesome. He said, Jesus doesn't even have to say a word. All he has to do is raise his hands. What does the Father see when Jesus raises his hands? The prints in his wrist from the nails in the cross. And that was necessary to pay for that sin. He would say to the Father, Father, we have an agreement. We've had it from before time that I would die for Mike Wood's sin. Take his full punishment. That would be true of any of us. Well, interestingly, the Bible, and I think you'll agree with me, I'm, not, I got, I'm going to give you an illustration or two of this. The Bible is actually a story of God turning unlikely people into spiritual heroes. Let me just stop. Can you think of someone who was very unlikely, whom he turned into someone we really look up to today? Well, another way of asking the question, can you think of anyone who was not an unlikely person? Why, really? But who, who are some of the main figures in the Bible? You could just throw out a name. Paul, yeah. 
He was not a likely character. He was out to kill everybody who had turned to Christ, was he? Right? Any other people? Who? Moses was a murderer. And when God came to him in the burning bush, what response did Moses say? He said, you got it right, Lord. I'm the man. Is that what he did? What did he say? I can't even talk. I've got glossophobia. Like Eric Little will have 2,500 years later, 3,000, whatever length of time. The good news is the Lord takes us. In the book of 1 Corinthians, the Bible says, Brothers, consider what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many of you were of noble birth. But God chooses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chooses the weak things of the world to shame the strong in order to take that which is nothing to glorify God. Because if we got the big head and we think we're big stuff, reality is we're no use to God. And He opposes us. Actually, God opposes the proud, the Bible says, but gives grace to the humble. Going back to Paul, Paul was asking Jesus to take a thorn out of his flesh. And what did the, how many times did he ask the Lord to do that? Three times. And then, what was the final answer Jesus gave to him? My perfect is made perfect in your weakness. Amen? And grace... Grace is what God uses in our lives. I'll tell you a story or two and I'll be done. All of y'all are too young to remember this. And it's a problem of growing old. You have a long memory. But there was a time, probably 50 years ago, maybe a little longer, there was a dairy product company known as Borden's. And the emblem of it was a Elsie the cow, the contented cow, Elsie. There was a descendant of the founder of the Borden Corporation, which was founded in the mid-1850s. His name was William Whiting Borden, Jr. He was the only child of a very wealthy couple. He was a boy who grew into a Christian in his teenage years, came to Christ in Chicago. His parents, after he graduated high school, he was 17 years of age, and they gave him, imagine this, sort of a around-the-world trip. It was not the airplane, obviously. It was in 1900-whatever, 04, I think it was. He was born in 1887. So he went and he began to grow in a desire to be a missionary. He had this heart. Well, his parents had other ideas for him. His dad did. His mother probably didn't. She was a Christian. I don't know about his dad. But he went away. After he got back, he'd already been accepted at Yale. It was an all-male school then. Every class was limited to 300 young men. And it was probably next to Harvard, Princeton. There was a lot of competition as to which was the preferred university to go to in the United States. He went, and he went as a Christian. This is what he went with on his mind. He said, Lord, would you use me? at this university. Would you use me? And he had been there just a while and he linked up with another believer and they decided they would meet to pray every morning for their 
classmates, all the freshmen men, the other 298. They began to pray for them by name. And that group grew, and it grew. He became the president of the most honorific society at the school, Phi Beta Kappa. He didn't join a social fraternity because he didn't want to be separated in any way from the rest of the students. He could have been a member of any frat there if he wanted to because of his status. He was a good student, too, and he was an athlete on top of that. But nevertheless, by the time he graduated, listen to this, there were 1,200 students in the university when he graduated. A thousand of them, a thousand, were following Jesus Christ because of that. When he graduated, he came to his father and said, Father, I do not believe the Lord wants me to be a part of our family business. His father was not happy. He began to try to persuade him. You can be a Christian and stay here. He said, no, Father. Father, I have been called to be a missionary. He had a particular people group that he believed God had called him to. It still exists in northwest China. People of oriental descent who are Muslims. And he went to seminary, Princeton Seminary, three years there. He really shone very brightly there as a student, and more importantly, his character did. He got on the ship to go to northwest China, and on the way there, he had planned, and he followed his plan to stop in Cairo because there is the greatest center of Quranic study is there and a great opportunity to learn Arabic. He wanted to be able to read the Quran in Arabic, and then be able to teach the contradictions in the Word of God, I mean in the Quran, about Jesus and the Word of God. Well, he was studying there. His mother was going to see him. They were going to take one last trip together, like a vacation, sightseeing in the Holy Land. But when she arrived, she found that he was deadly sick. He had developed meningitis. And just a, a few days later, he died at the age of 25. Never reached his destination. It reminds me of what the Bible says about King David. David wanted to build the temple, remember? And God said no. Do you remember what his son said, Solomon, later about David? His, the Bible says that Solomon said, it was in David's heart to build the temple. It was in Bill Borden's heart to reach that unreached people group in northwest China. His Bible, his Bible talking about Bill Borden's Bible, in the back, very back, he had written three simple phrases and dated each one. The first one was, no reserve. No reserve. And it was dated the date that he decided to be a missionary and not stay here. He had written in his will. Now this is I think when this would have been 13 and 1912. Okay, this is over 100 years ago. He had $800,000 that he owned himself. He'd never worked a day in his life, probably. He'd been a student, but he inherited that. He left that to the China Inland Mission, the group that he was going to serve. $800,000. No reserve. The next little phrase was no retreat. 
when he told his dad after he graduated from seminary, I'm not going to work in the company. He wrote that down and dated it as a reminder that he made that commitment to the Lord. No retreat. No reserve. No retreat. And then the last thing he wrote just a day or two before he died, no regrets. No regrets. Why didn't he have a regret? Why? Because he was sold out to the Lord, right? And he knew his God. He knew his God was not one who was going to leave him. He died, but he died in the will of God, actually. He was not afraid to die because he knew he was going to heaven. That's awesome to think about, isn't it? The Bible says, of course, Jesus says, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel shall save it. That's what the Bible says. So what God would call us to do is be people who are not bound by fear of people, but fear of God. What does the Bible say? The fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. The fear of man brings a snare. But the person who trusts in the Lord will be exalted. Now, that doesn't mean we're going to be shoved in the limelight. doesn't mean that. That's what one would think. But the idea is just lift it up. In other words, the idea of being lifted up by the victorious right hand of God. God by the way, what is written in the hand of God, in the palm of the hand of God? Do any of you know? Annalise's name is written in the palm of the hand of God. My name is a child of God. The Bible says in that passage of Scripture, I think it's the 46th chapter, I'm not sure, 46th chapter of Isaiah, talks about how God has inscribed our names on His hand. We know that's figuratively speaking, but I don't know. Maybe it's really there. Inscribed on His hand. He says, if your mother forgets you or your father forgets who you are, he will never forget your name. He's with us. Isn't that what he says? Do not fear, for I am with you. Do not anxiously look about you, because I am your God. I'm going to take care of you, right? We need to be willing to risk whatever we have to know and love and grow and go with God and be without fear. Three quick things to help us keep this pool of courage at a good level. Make a habit of thinking back on things which you've seen God do in your life that could not be explained other than His doing it. Like Kayla coming to the Lord. Jennifer on her way to the Lord. Your sister probably coming. Whoever this relative is coming closer to the Lord. Crystal coming closer to the Lord along with Sophia. All these things which we talked about, Patty and is it Isaac or Isaiah? Isaac coming to the Lord. Think about those and visit those things occasionally. Secondly, also affirm the power of God. In the book of First Samuel fourteen, there's a story told about Jonathan the son of Saul. David hadn't even entered the picture at this time. Jonathan believed God wanted him and his armor-bearer to take on a whole garrison of Philistines. The numbers were formidable, 30 to 2. That's a pretty bad odd, 15 to 1. And they only had one sword between the two of them. And 
The Philistines were fully armed with swords and other spears and things made of iron. And so this is what, listen carefully, this is what Jonathan said to his armor bearer. Perhaps the Lord will deliver us from the hands of the Philistines. And then as he began to poke his head up from a foxhole and began to look at these guys scattered out in a plain, kind of like a meadow. And then he says this. He makes an affirmation about God's power. He says, nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. Look, he started out with some indecision. Perhaps the Lord will deliver us. And then when he takes another step in faith, what does he say? Nothing can hinder the Lord from saving, whether by many or by few. That would be true for you and me too. When God gives us an assignment, we trust in Him. It's not about us, is it? It's about Him. It's about His power, not about our power, as we trust in Him. And then he went on with his armor bearer. His armor bearer was encouraged too. You know, there are people looking at you and wondering when you're going to make a statement of faith that's backed up by an action, taking a step in faith, risking. And there are people who are needing someone to follow spiritually. You guys are leaders. I know that. All of you are leaders. And God wants you to be this kind of person for His glory. And we don't want to brag about it. There's no room for bragging, is there? What does Paul say as we close today? If I'm going to boast about anything... Look at Galatians 6. Let's let's close with this. Look at Galatians 6. I think it's about verse 14. I'm not real sure. But Galatians chapter 6. What does 14 say, Alan? You may never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So what are we to boast in? The cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Praise the Lord, right? Okay, let's pray. Father, help us not to be fearful. Help us to be faithful. Thank you for each one in the room, Lord. Thank you for the heart you placed into each one of them. They all, to a person almost today, each one has talked about someone that they have come into contact with who needs to grow in the Lord or know the Lord. And we just pray as we close for Annalise and her ministry to her family, minister to her, minister through her in East Texas. And Jesus, we ask these things in your name. Amen.